0: Good morning, officially. This is kind of nice having it be the, the first opportunity I come up when we go to speak. We have been talking over the last couple months about the um, subject of knowing God and uh, growing in, in His knowledge and His grace. And, um, hmm, technical difficulties. Ah, much better. And so, in talking about knowing God, we talked about the fact that it is the most stimulating relationship that you could ever have. And as we've then considered the, the, uh, the subject of knowing God, we likened it to, to the ocean. And we talked about how vast the ocean is, but that many of us have only read about oceans in books. We've studied them and so like yet, but we've never been to the ocean. And so, some of us need to, to come to the ocean. Some of us have been to the ocean, we've, we've just been kind of hanging out on the beach, looking at the ocean, saying, that ocean's pretty cool. But you need to get in the ocean. And so we've considered then the concept of God, like that ocean, and talking about its vastness. There's nursery. Okay? There's nursery, so if you'd like to use a nursery, that's there. And we considered over this past time then, we first thing we talked about was the existence of God, and the, the exclusiveness of God, that He alone is God. We talked about the composition of God, and that, Uh, God is one, and yet God is three, and then we began talking about the attributes of God, what is God like? And in that, we said that we were going to talk about the natural attributes of God, and then we're going to talk about the vocational attributes, and then we're going to talk about the moral attributes of God. We just finished last week talking about the natural attributes of God, and in that, we talked about the fact that God is sovereign, we talked about the fact that God is limitless, which means that he is omniscient, and he is omnipresent, and last week we talked about the fact that God was all-powerful, or omnipotent. Today, I want to slide into the second segment of those attributes, one that I call vocational attributes. Now, I've had a lot of debates over this past week of whether vocational should be the proper word or not, but the idea is that we want to look at the works by which God is known. An attribute is something by which somebody is known as, okay? Vocation talks about somebody's work, and so the idea here is what are the works by which God is known, because God is known as certain things, okay, he's referred to that in the scriptures. The first one is, he is the creator. If you look throughout the the scriptures, many times we're told about God being the creator. And so when you refer to the creator, who are you referring to? You're referring to God. Well, first of all, we know that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so in Genesis 1-1, the entire Bible starts off with the fact that God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Makes sense, right? And then we read in Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5, it says, Praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him all ye angels, praise Him all His hosts, praise Him sun, moon, praise Him all you stars of light, praise Him you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh. Why? For He commanded and they were created. That throughout the scriptures God continually is referred to as the one who spoke and it, it was. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, and let's look at what, um, even up to the, into the, the ending of the Old Testament, how God is, is referred to and how he refers to himself. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 28, we read, with Yahweh speaking, says, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, we talked about that, right, the eternal one, the one who has no beginning or end, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, or the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. And in chapter 42, if you're there in Isaiah still, turn over to chapter 42, look at verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth in that from which it comes over it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. Again, clearly, what does Yahweh refer to himself as? The creator, okay? That is by one thing. Now, this is interesting because of the fact of where we're at in our culture today. One of the, the, the chief things by which God, if you would, is being attacked is the fact that he is the, the creator. What do we want to teach in the public schools? Evolution, okay? And it's creeping into Christian schools as well, the teaching of evolution. And there is the, the great debate, well, can't evolution and creation go hand in hand? And the answer is, Emphatically, no. It cannot. Okay? Now, I don't want to do a message on creation versus evolution, but it cannot. Suffice it to say for right now, it cannot go hand in hand. God is the creator, period. And God, when he created, he spoke all things into being. And that's what we, what we read about. In Revelation chapter 4, we read the chapter this morning. In the final uh, two verses there, in verse 11, we read, You are worthy, O Lord, and I think it's probably Yahweh, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things... And by your will, they exist and were created. So even there, in the throne room of God, to the, to the end of the, the Bible, so from the beginning, Genesis 1, 1, all the way to the end, God is referred to as the creator. And he's the one who created all things according to his will. Why? Because he is he's God, but he's sovereign. As God, he is sovereign. So remember we talked about that, the sovereignty of God, and how it applies even then to our creation okay, that God has the, the, the right to be um, sovereign over those things. Now, he's not only the creator of the heavens and the earth, but he's the creator specifically of mankind. Now, that kind of makes sense, because we live in the realm, but it's one of those things that we, we stop to think about, because there are those, again, who say that, you know, God kind of started the process, and then did what? And walked away, let it go. And so, though God created and began it all, we still are the, the, the process of evolution, Well, that's not the case at all. Isaiah 45, if you're still there, in Isaiah, you can look at chapter 45, verse 18, it says, For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it. Why? Who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Now, how many ways can God say that he's the one who created the earth? I mean, think about it. Who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth, who made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. Now, there's a question then, why did God create the heavens and the earth? Right? He gives us the answer. Why did he create the earth? Say again? For us to live on. on. He knew he was going to make man. And he wanted man to have a place to live. So he created the heavens and the earth. So you and I could live on it. And so we read then in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and the cattle, over all the earth and over creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so you and I, again, are a product of God's creative being. That God is the creator. We read, as well in Psalm 102 verse 18, this will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise Yahweh. I like this verse, because it doesn't just say again that God started something and let it go. But what does it refer to? Who are going to be created? What people? The ones who weren't there yet. The ones just... Us. That's exactly right. I'm in that verse. Do you get it? I wasn't there when that psalm was written. Were you? No. I mean, if you were, let me know. I mean, I, we, could, we definitely have the, the world's oldest person right now, right? And so, the reality is none of us were there. And yet, this will be written. These psalms will be written so that a generation yet to be created... Not just populated, not just coming about, but created. And so in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, why don't you turn there with me? Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, is David's writing regarding God's special creation of himself. Psalm 139. David writes, you formed me in my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest part of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God took a piece of clay, and he, out of that piece of clay, he began to form it, and that piece of clay that he formed was David. And he chose how David, that piece of clay called David, was going to look, how he was going to be formed, and what the days of that piece of clay called David was going to hold. Does that make sense? And so think about it, when you then were not even yet the gleam in your mother's eye, God knew you. When you were conceived, God began an incredible work of molding you and forming you into the individual that he had you to be. We talked about this a little bit on that sovereignty side. Many of us want to complain about the type of clay that we are. Maybe we wanted to be a different style of clay. Maybe we wanted to be a different color of clay. Maybe we wanted to to have a different form of the clay. But God chose to form us as he chose to form us. And he said that before we ever lived a day, our days were written in the book How does it make you feel to know that tomorrow's already happened in the plan of God? You, in a sense, have some control over what's going to happen tomorrow. But in the other side of it, God already knows. And it's already written in the book. And so the decisions that you make today, which may affect tomorrow, hasn't taken God by surprise at all because he's gotten it all written down. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are fearful? You. Not not other people. You can look at other people and say, man, they are really fearfully and wonderfully. Look at the talents that they have. No, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. So God is the creator, both of heavens and earth and of mankind. Secondly, he is the judge. Now, this is one that we really don't want to talk about. But the fact that God is the creator, the fact that he is God and God alone, and that he is the one who's created us, and that he is sovereign over all the affairs of men, leads us to the conclusion, and as well as the Bible teaching it, that God as well is the judge. He is the one that all of his creation is going to give an account to. Think of the potter and think of the clay. The potter takes the clay and he begins to form the, the vase, the vase. And as he forms the vase, he chooses to not allow it to be a vase anymore, but chooses to do what? Scrunch it down and make it into a planter. Does he have the right to do that? He does. But let's say that as the, the, um, he continues to make it into the vase, and he fires it, and the vase is sitting on the, on, the, um, on the shelf, and the vase does not do what he created it to do. Does he have the right to smash the vase if he chooses to? He does. So many of us, though, we struggle with the fact that God has the right to, to judge. We want to think that you know, God is the, the loving God, God is the lo- and he is, we're going to talk about the love of God down the road, but that God will not what? Condemn anyone. You know, because as a judge, the judge sits upon the, the, uh, the bench there, and he is the one who determines who can be set free and who can go to jail. Well, it's the same thing, eternally speaking. God is the one who is the judge. And first of all, we see that there is a judgment of, of all people. And so in Genesis chapter 18, from the very beginning, even from the days of Abraham, um, that Abraham recognized the fact that God was the judge of the entire earth. And so when God comes down and shows himself to, to Abraham on the plains of Mamre, he is doing so on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah because he's going to Sodom and Gomorrah to do what? Judge. To judge them. Okay, And so we read, and Yahweh said to, to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know it. And then verse 23, it says, And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous and the wicked? In Verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous and with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And it is written in such a way that it's going to provoke the answer of, Yes, of course. Of course the judge of the entire earth will do right. Which means what? According to these verses. That there is going to be a judgment of the righteous and the the wicked. And will it be the same judgment? No. It will be by the same standard, but it will have a different end. The end of the judgment of the righteous will be different than the end of the judgment of the wicked. And so we read again in Hannah's prayer, when after um, God had given Samuel to her, and she was offering a, a, a song of praise to God, she cries out and says, My heart rejoices in Yahweh, my horn is exalted in Yahweh, I smile at my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken in pieces, From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord, Yahweh, will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This isn't talking about, this is prophetic. It's not just talking about what's going on at that time. Think about it. Did Israel have a king at this moment? No, they didn't. Who did they have? They had Eli, the high priest, remember? okay? And Samuel was being born. And so, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Who is that talking about? It's talking about Christ, talking about Messiah, who was to come, who was going to be of the seed of David, although David um, wasn't even born yet. Isn't that kind of cool stuff? So God already had the plan that was out there, and God said that he was going to be the judge of all mankind. There was a plan. There was a plan that was going to come about. Messiah was going to come. And when Messiah came, Messiah was going to be the the judge as well. And so we see in Psalm 98, verse 9 For he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness, he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. And in 2 Timothy 4 and 1, um, we read, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Who is going to be that judge? Christ. God, but Christ. Who is Jesus? God in the, the flesh. And so when Jesus comes back to reign on the earth, he will also be the judge of the earth. Turn with me to to Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, a passage that many of you, probably all of you, know or heard of and are familiar with, but one which is extremely important for us to consider as well. If you were here last year when we went through the book of Revelation, we spent a Sunday talking about this passage as well. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades were delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Picture what's being written. There is a throne... A white throne, a great white throne. And at that white throne, there are different books. There is a stack of books on one side, and then there is a book individually on the other side. There are the books of works, and then there is the book of life. And it says that everybody coming before that throne, before that judgment seat, is going to be judged based upon the things that were written in the books, in the books of works. How many people are going to be found righteous when their works are considered? None. There are many today who, who think that because they're a good person, they're going to get to heaven. They think that their good works are going to outweigh their bad works. The sad thing is in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says that though I obey the whole law, and yet I stumble at one point, I'm guilty of, of it all. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, because if you stumble at one point, you're guilty of it all, and so therefore you're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death, therefore by the, by the books that are opened up, and, all the, and, and the works of the people, and as they are judged, they are going to be found Guilty. And they are going to be condemned. To be judged. But on the other side of the throne, there is going to be a book singular called the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. And anyone whose name is found written in that Lamb book of life, regardless of the guilt from the books of works, their sin will be paid for their sin will be atoned for. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But suffice it to say, for each one of us here today, it is good for us to consider who we are in the sight of God the judge. You are a part of that mankind which he created. And you are a part of the all people who will be judged. It was the considering of my works according to God's laws that brought me to him. That I had my own standards. I went to church every Sunday. Whether it snowed or not. We walked in the snow uphill both ways. (laughs) But though I'd gone to church and though I knew all about him, I didn't know him. And I had my own standards. And I thought as if I lived to my standards, I'd be all right. But all of a sudden I realized that I couldn't live even to my own standards. I broke even my own standards. The things that I said that I would do and wouldn't do. And I realized that if I couldn't live to my own standards, I could never live to God's standards. And the law then was to me a schoolmaster, a tutor, as we read about in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But suffice it to say that the entire earth is going to be judged by God. But even more specifically, to you and I, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you may think that because you accepted Christ as your Savior, you escape judgment. But you don't escape judgment. Because God will be the judge of his people as well. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 3 to 7, we read, Our God shall come, and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempting tempestuous all around him. We think, wow, he must be talking about hell, fire, and brimstone. He's talking about the unregenerate. He's talking about the pagans. He's talking about the heathen, right? No, not so. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare righteousness for God himself is judged. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. We're told by Peter that when the, when the final judgment comes, it's going to begin where? In the household of God. That God will begin his judgment in his own household. I love your kids. I care about your kids. If I see your kids doing wrong, I'm going to go and encourage them, encourage them to do what is right. But more than likely, I'm not going to spank your kids. But I'm going to flick greater judgment on my kids. God's going to begin his desire for purity and holiness with his own people. If you are his child, Hebrews chapter 12, walking in sin, and he hasn't chastised you, then you're not his child. That's what the Bible says. But if you, are, if you proclaim to be his child, and you're walking in sin, then he will chastise you. Because every father who loves his child will chasten his child. And so if you're not being chastened, you're not his child. I didn't say that. God did. You can check, read Hebrews 12 and check me out. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 6-10, to So we are called, always confident, knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yet well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things that are done in his body according to what he has done whether good or bad by what are you saved by God's grace through faith and so we know Ephesians 2:89 right we can quote that because well you know it's not works right by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself it's a gift of God it's not of works lest any man should boast. So therefore, it's not what I do. See, it's not a matter what I do. It's, it's by faith. And so my faith is there. And so therefore, I can do what? I can do whatever I want to do now. So grace may abound. That's Romans 5 and Romans 6. But God, Paul says, so shall I continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, no, may it not be so. God forbid, may again He says, no, it should never be so. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 continues on with verse 10, doesn't it? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God's, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which he has before ordained that we should walk in them. So when God called you, not according to your works, but according to faith, he called you and saved you for one particular purpose, and that was that you would do what? Good works. And so Matthew 5 says that you are like a city that is set upon a hill whose light shall not be hid and that your word should be salted with his word so that people would observe your good works and they would glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, James says in James chapter 2, you say you have faith, but you have no works. It's dead. That's exactly right. Because faith without works is is dead. He says, but I'll show you my faith according to my, my works. Listen, if you have true faith, it's going to come out in what you do. In your works, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with me or not, it doesn't matter because it's in the Bible. Your works as a believer is going to be judged. What do you think it means? when it talks about believers standing before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe it means I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know what you believe. But many people don't want to say that. They say, well, in heaven there's no, what? No crying, no shedding of tears, and so it's just a joyous place, and so, no, I'm not going to have this judgment. I, you know, there is going to be some form of judgment, according to the word. What's that? It will wife will, wife will it, yes. The point is, there's going to be a loss. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that we're going to be tested as by fire. The things which we have done that are wood, hay, and stubble are going to be burned up and gone away, but the things which are gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. There are rewards for us in heaven by what we have done. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the moth and the rust doth not corrupt. But we're so busy trying to lay up treasures where? On the earth, where Jesus said, what's going to happen? The moth and the rust are going to corrupt it. They're going to be destroyed. But rather, we should be living for eternity, understanding that the 70, 80 years that I have on this earth are really just a proving ground, are really just a a place of investment toward the days of eternity where I'll spend in His presence. So God will judge His people. Why, though, ultimately, does God judge His people? What is the purpose? Well, in the book of Ezekiel, from chapter 6 through 11 we read that God desires that all people would know that he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. And so in Ezekiel 11, verse 10 to 12, we read, You shall fall by the sword, I will judge you. He's talking to his people right now. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Why? Why? For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the custom of the Gentiles, which are all around you. We talked this morning from the book of Nehemiah in Sunday school, and we went did a little bit of a rabbit trail, and we talked about legalism versus standards and stuff like that, and we talked about the, the concept of separation. And the idea of most Christians is they have their eyes in the world, and as long as they're staying a little bit separate from the world, they're Okay. But that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to be holy as he is holy. To be perfect as he is perfect. And so he's told us in Romans 12 through Paul to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable act of worship, and not to be conformed to this world, but to rather be transformed in the renewing of our mind that we may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so many of us have our eyes on the world, and we just want to be like the world. And God says, no, that's the purpose of my judgment. Because you're taking the custom of the the world, of the Gentiles. He tells them through the prophet Jeremiah as well, the same thing. That Israel has put their eyes upon the world, and has become blended to the world. They want to be like the world. And I would venture to say to you that the church of Jesus Christ in the United States Is just like Israel of that day. What's that? (laughs) Preach Pastor Bob. We want to be like the world. And that includes Bob. Bob struggles with it. I'm not putting on everybody else. We've got to be careful of what our vision is. What is your focus? What is your desire? What is your standard? What is your goal? Do you want to be holy as he is holy? You will give an account one day. Whether you are not his, and then you will give a great account because you will spend eternity not in his presence. That is called hell. You will be in the lake of fire. You will be in the place where the worm dies not, neither does the fire be quenched. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. There are people who don't want to believe in heaven or believe in hell because the righteous God, you know, a good God, loving God wouldn't do that. But yes, he would. He said so himself. But he also said that he will judge his people. And though I may be able to be in his presence for all of eternity, there will be a time when I will give an account. And I will give an account here on the earth. Again, Hebrews chapter 12. That God does not want me as his child walking in sin. 1 John chapter 1 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we have fellowship with him, then we'll walk in the light. But if you do sin, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar, and his word is not in you. But in chapter 2, then, he goes on and says that he, this, he who says, I know him, and does not obey his commandments, is a liar. And his word is not in him. You may not be perfect, but is it your desire to be perfect? You may not look like Jesus right now, but is your desire to look like Jesus? Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'm not preaching works. By grace are you saved through faith. But if you truly are his, then you will have a desire to magnify him through your life, by your works, Which, according to Philippians chapter 2, he is the one who works in you, both to do and to will of his good pleasure. If you know him, he will give you the desire to do what is right. James chapter 1 says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask of God, who will give to all men what? Liberally. He wants you to do what is right. And that's in the midst of the trials and the temptations that James 1 is talking about. The judgment of his people will come. Finally, he is the Savior. And this is the exciting part. I said we'd come back to it, because this is the exciting part. As the creator of the heavens and the earth, God created you for a purpose, and that purpose was to have fellowship with him. God desires all men. God desires all men to have fellowship with him. However, I believe, as I stated before in the concept of sovereignty, that God has also given man the right of dominion. He said so. When he created man, he made him in his image to have dominion. We have the right to make decisions. He's not going to force you to be a puppet. But though God desires all men to be saved, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and come to the knowledge of truth. He knows that you can't do that on your own. There is no way for you to be able to do that. And so he also has made the plan. So first of all, does God have the ability to save? And the answer is yes. And so as we read, it is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires what? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. We read in Isaiah 45, 21-22, Tell and bring forth your case, yes, Let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a what? Savior. Isn't it interesting how those two concepts go together? A just God. And we'll talk about that when we get into his moral attributes. And a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Is there any other means of salvation? The answer is no. Why? God said so himself. God said that he is the Savior. There is none other. What's the strategy to save? By grace are you what? Saved through faith. And so as we've been going through Romans Road, um, last care group, and tonight we'll be doing it as well again, we know Romans 3.23 tells us what? All have sinned and come short of the... Glory of God, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ. How did they do that? Romans 5.8. For while God commanded his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, how does all that apply to me? How does I bring that together? Well, here we go. Romans 10.8-10, right? It says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved. Why? For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Right? And so, we know that salvation then, is based upon what? Your heart, but what about your heart? Faith. The the, the belief, the faith that's in your heart. That's exactly right. It's not just a matter of saying something with your mouth, but it's believing it in your heart. And so, we read about Paul talking to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, 30 to 31. Where he says, and he brought them out, and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" So Paul and Silas said to him, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be what? You will be saved in your household." First Timothy four ten to eleven. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who what? Believe. These things command and teach. I love that passage again, because he is the Savior of who? All men. Again, First John. We read chapter, or I quoted chapter 1, but going into chapter 2, between the verses that I skipped, it says, For he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. The payment is made for all of your sins. Not just for all of your sins, but for everybody's sins who are in the face of the entire earth. Whoever lived, God intimately knew every single individual who would ever live on this earth. He was their creator. He put the breath of life into every single one of them. And so we're told in, in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life. And he placed into each man who was born the light. And so we read in Romans chapter 1 that everyone who is on the face of the earth has a knowledge of God. God has given them that knowledge. And man makes the decision what he's going to do with that. And God comes through his Holy Spirit and he draws all men to himself. Isn't that what he said? And if I be lifted up, I will what? I will draw who? Some? All. Jesus said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he comes to draw, but man does what? Man rejects. He either accepts or rejects. So God is the Savior of all men. He is! It doesn't mean that every person is going to be saved and that there's universal salvation. It means that God is the Savior of all men and if everybody would do what? Call upon his name, they can be what? They can be saved. But he's especially the Savior of those who what? Who believe. Why? Because those are the ones who have appropriated what he's done for them. I put a million dollars in the bank for every single one of you. I'm independently wealthy. The, The letters in the mail saying that I've done that. But you know what? The only way that's ever going to be appropriated to you is with what? You go to the bank and get it. And so God, in a sense, has done that for every single person on the face of the earth. He has put in the first bank of heaven a gift, a bounty of salvation for every single person. But people who choose not to do that, they choose to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, by their own works, but as we saw earlier... And to God being the judge, what happens when we trust in our own judgments, in our own works? They're not going to go anyplace. That's exactly right. And so God is the Savior, not of just um, believers, but he could be the Savior of the entire world. So I ask you, you being created for a purpose to have fellowship with God, have you accepted the fact that God is the creator of the universe? The heavens and the earth, of you individually. Do you honestly believe that you were fearfully and wonderfully made? Do you believe that he is the judge and that one day you will stand before him? Whether you are unsaved and your judgment is between heaven and hell or where you're going to spend eternity or whether you are his and that you will stand before the, the judgment seat of Christ and you will give an account for what you've done with the, the gift that he's given to you of salvation. Do you believe that you will stand before that judge and you will give an account? It makes a difference in how you live your life today. And finally, do you believe that God is the Savior of all men and that he has provided for you, he has purchased for you to the gift of salvation by the sacrifice of his own very son, who was God in the flesh, which is himself, that God came to the earth and died on a cross for you and was raised again the third day to give the power over death and victory over death. God desires for you to be saved. Have you accepted that gift today? And are you walking in it? Are you living in it? Let's pray. Father,